Welcome to Metaphysical Soul Speak. I'm your host, Elena Fox Starks. Hey guys, I hope that whenever and wherever you are, when you listen to this recording, which is my future and your present moment, I hope that you're able to embrace your divine masculine and your divine feminine sides. We all have both inside of us. And I hope you're able to understand that you are a whole person with or without another person, like in a relationship situation with you. So whether you're alone or you're with a kindred spirit, who is basically someone who has a lot in common with you, but no karma, which is freaking awesome. Love that. (laughs) I've met a few kindred spirits in the past few years since all my karma was done with other people. It's been phenomenal. I love meeting people with absolutely no blech from the past. It's just like clean slate, pure breath of fresh air to be with them. I love kindred spirits. People I knew only in heaven, maybe. You know, it's happened a few times. I'm really grateful that I've had to experience that I've had that in my life and I've gotten to experience that. It's been a wonderful opportunity. But, you know, some some of you have your soulmates, people you're still working stuff on or are working on stuff with together. But maybe you're done with the karma part, but now you're still together because you're soulmates and you know you've you've hit, you've been through a lot together. You've had a lot to do. And some of you are with your twin flames. I'm incarnate and it's a rougher relationship for sure. It's, it's the hardest one out of all the relationships, uh, to have. And I've only met a couple of my near twins. I haven't met my official, um, (laughs) my true twin flame yet. I've just met a couple of my near twins. I think we're born in clusters like the TV show, um, sense eight that's on, um, Netflix. In fact, when I was watching that show, I was like, confused a little bit by it but I was intrigued and loved the concept and it wasn't until like really recently that I'm like oh duh they're all twin flames and they're all like the near twins are with each other until the true twins can be together and it's just how it is it's just sometimes you you come here to do the twin flame work with your near twin because your true twin isn't ready or the circumstances aren't right. You know, like if you're both married or something, you know, to other people, it's not right to come together yet. And all the timing with the twin thing has to be completely right. You know what I mean? And I always say, I can't wait to be with my twin. Cause Hey, if you think you're my twin, call me, <laughs> but we're not going to be together until we are ready for each other. And that means not until we are a hundred percent, um, 
solid and sovereign inside of ourselves and feeling 100% whole and also having worked through all of our issues. You know, so that's why, that's one huge reason why I keep saying, I can't wait to be with my twin. You know, it's not because I'm needy because I'm not, it's not because I'm, um, I mean, I've been single for 11 years. I've had little bits and pieces of relationships, three months here, six months there. Um, but nothing super serious, nothing like marriage material serious, not in 11 years, 11 twin number, (laughs) but you know, I've had love, you know, I've had love towards people in love. Not so much. I thought a couple times maybe, but then not really. And, um, I don't know. It's like, you got to really, 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 really work on yourself and really be ready for that relationship to occur. So it's why I keep saying, I can't wait for my twin to come because that means I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to face the next logical leap, (laughs) you know? And, and then when you become ready to join together and you're moving along the path of the ascended Christ energy together, You know, so I'm excited about it. Honestly, I'm really like, I'm really excited. I can't wait, you know, for it. A lot of people have gotten together with their twins and then you have the twin flame runner (laughs) because you really weren't ready for it. But meeting each other, knowing it exists, realizing, oh, wow, (laughs) there is the other half of my soul. And, you know, and then a part you have to become whole with your divine masculine, divine feminine inside. And then you get back together with the other one. Once you are whole and complete people and you're absolute mirrors for each other. And when you get together too early, then you, you see what you don't want to see in the mirror. And you know, I I don't know a single person who looks in the mirror and doesn't like what they see and continue to stare into it. (laughs) You know, um, quickly gain outside of that reflection would be the fastest way to feel better, right? If you look in the mirror and go, oh God, (laughs) you don't want to continue looking in the mirror, right? (laughs) But I hope that you're able to discern the difference between the true feminine inside you and all the stereotypical crap that we believe is feminine. You know, just because a woman wears high heels doesn't make her feminine. That's a fashion uh, choice, right? You know, I mean, just because you wear clothes that are dainty and girly and lacy and pink, that doesn't make you feminine. That makes you a slave to the idea of what femininity is in our society today, right? And if you um, are a man, it doesn't mean that you need to embrace your masculine identity by refusing to cry and stubbornly refusing to say, I love you and always wanting to wear camouflage and going out hunting. You know what I mean? Like those are all stereotypes. That's what I mean by stereotypes. Like, you know, the man being the breadwinner and women have to stay home and be barefoot and pregnant because they're too dainty to do anything. Dude, we give birth. That's like harder than anything any man ever really has to do physically. I mean, except for maybe like loggers, but even then, like, I'm sure, you know, 
killing a deer and dragging it through the forest. That's hard, but it's not something that you have to go through. You know what I mean? And most men actually don't. And, but when we give birth as women, I mean, that's like freaking intense for me. That's the height of femininity is like going through something that intense, but not all women give birth. And sometimes it's a choice. Sometimes a choice is taken away from them. It's, it's a limitation that you pick for yourself before you get here. So that's not really even what feminine energy is all about either. It's just a part of it. If you choose that as a part of your path, I, I've been female in many, many lifetimes and never gave birth. I, you know, it's just most of my lifetimes. I never had kids period. I think, um, maybe twice before this. <laughs> I mean, at all, I mean, period, like throughout all, I think I was sterile in most of my lifetimes, actually, when I was a female <laughs> or just decided to take a godly path and not, I, you know, I've always been looking for, you know, seeking God, not really interested in the whole relationship thing. And now this is my only life where I'm like, ah, oh, all right, this is it. Like I've had relationships in other lifetimes, but it wasn't my main focus in this one. It has been because I wanted, you know, to uh, experience it. And I'm excited. I've gotten to meet kindred spirits recently. I've met a lot of soulmates and I have no more karma. So I'm I'm waiting, ready for my twin because I'm excited about that energy. And the only way that you're going to find your true twin flame, if you are incarnate, most people are not incarnate with their twin, but it's to balance yourself out right also if you're not incarnate as a twin you still need to balance yourself out you know <laughs> if you're done with all your soulmate relationships and you're single even you've got to balance yourself out because that's how we're going to get physically into the fifth dimension next month and a lot of the energy is coming from the universe right now the um I mean, I want to say maybe it was like a supernova or something. Something blew up in the center of the universe. And we've been getting these massive waves, massive waves of energy. According to Weiss Series 24D, Sarah O'Brien. Highly recommend her channel if you want to go listen to her um, explanations of some of this. And one thing that she mentioned today just really struck a chord with me. I felt like, yes, yes. Why did I not ever think about this before? Um, this world has always been a world of duality, right? The planet was based on uh, feeling like the male versus female, the us versus them, the, you know, me versus you, you know, the opposites, you know, um, like attracts like, and also opposites attract. It's like, is like been a world of conundrum, <laughs> basically a world of chaos, <laughs> And the um, thing that she said that just blew my mind because I know on some level I already knew this, but I completely forgot that this is an electromagnetic world and we are electromagnetic beings. But she broke it down in this way. The electro part, the electric part, electricity is masculine. The magnetic part is feminine. 
You can't have one without the other on this planet, not even in your own body. And what has really struck me and ironic use of the word struck is what did I say yesterday? Like 857,000 lightning strikes around the um, island, White Island in New Zealand where that volcano erupted randomly. That, that is a balance that is the, the universal attempt. And I believe it's happening for real to balance the masculine and the feminine together because the electricity, the lightning strikes, that's masculine. But did you know that the volcanoes are feminine? And I'm going to tell you why. It's when the um, lava flows, when the magma is flowing, um, that creates a magnetic energy. And it's it's crazy heady. It, it, it affects your mind. It affects your sense of um, everything around you. I lived in Guatemala with my kids for like nine months and we lived on the lake for about three months. And we, uh, and I say the lake, uh, Lake Atitlan, Lago Atitlan is um, one of the most beautiful lakes in the whole world. And when you get there, there's this magnetism, this strong, powerful, earthy Pachamama energy like powerful, powerful magnetism. And it's because there's lava flowing underneath constantly and it magnetizes everything. You could go there, you could go there and like, it'll be one or two weeks before you realize you have not even showered and you never really needed to during that time. It's really freaking weird. Like you don't get the same it's not the same you know if you go for a couple weeks without showering anywhere on the planet you're gonna smell you know right you you know that right it's just gonna be like whoa i feel like oh i feel yucky i feel gross i feel like i, I smell i i ooh, yuck yeah i need a shower but i remember there um like taking a shower and then like a couple like a week or two later going wait a minute, how long has it been since I've taken a shower? And like walking backward and my hair's not even dirty. My body didn't even feel weird or bad or stinky or nothing. There's like a headiness. It's like this magnetism. I mean, you go there and it feels like hours and hours and hours and hours will pass and it feels like an hour. Or sometimes it's the opposite depending there's some really funky things going on in that lake but that heavy duty magnetism and i think that there it's almost like there's deep powerful magnets underneath that lake that's a mysterious lake that place is mysterious af like i mean so many crazy things happened there um stories that people told me they'd been living there for a long long time and the expatriates, they had some crazy stories. And the locals had some crazy stories. Like stuff that people don't really feel terribly comfortable talking about because the stories are so insane. And one of the weird things is that lake um, fills up with so much water 
that for 20 years, the water goes up, 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 up and swallows half of the businesses on the shore. And that's why people want to honor the energy of the fish spirits and the lake spirits and on their businesses that are near the shore. They, um, they paint pictures of mermaids and they paint pictures of fish and whales and dolphins and the fish that are in the lake and octopus and everything. And the lake will fill up for 20 years and swallow up a whole bunch of businesses. And then after 20 years of filling up, 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 the lake will start to slowly drain down, 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 down. And then we get those businesses back and then it'll continue to go down even farther. And we, you know, and then it'll start back up and it'll start filling up again. And it's a cycle. It's like a 40 year cycle, like 20 years filling up, 20 years draining out. And we had an earthquake there, a really powerful earthquake there. When we were there, we we were like on the fourth floor of this building that didn't look too safe to begin with. Scared the crap out of us. We're like, oh God, you know, we didn't have time to get in the stairwell and we really didn't want to even try. We just held on inside of doorways and just prayed. And we watched the edge of the lake near the town called San Juan, which was next to where we were in San Pedro. And we were looking down and like a whirlpool, like, like when you unplug a bath, a bathtub drain and it drains out and it makes that sucking sound as water swirls the drain. We watched as the lake went down like five to 10 feet in that area. The rest of the lake looked kind of normal and it just went underneath the, I guess the tectonic plate. It just like the lake just drained on out and it made that (laughs) sort of sound. And we were like, what the actual hell just happened? And then we watched as the water refilled, like you slowly fill the bathtub over the next two or three days, we saw it fill back up and no one wanted to talk about it. (laughs) It was crazy. That kind of crap was happening all the time there. And the magnetism made people like relaxed and at peace. And it felt like everybody was high, even if they weren't. (coughs) And um, a friend of ours told us that he loves diving in the lake and he likes swimming. But once you get too close to where the magma is flowing underneath the lake, the energy and the magnetism is so powerful that your head can literally explode. And his, he's, he was a tribal person and the people, the elders in his village for generations have always told the younger ones, when you go swimming in the lake, don't go swimming too much close to the bottom. Don't try to dive towards the bottom because your head will explode because of the magnetism is so powerful. Right. And the energy there was really, really deeply powerful, mysterious definitely feminine and the lake had a definite feminine energy to it and um I I just thought that was interesting so I think that this balancing out yeah and I don't know if you've ever noticed that when I mean probably you haven't unless you've studied the volcano explosion uh videos like I have 
it, it, it just drives me crazy how incredibly beautiful and scary powerful volcanoes are I've been ever since Kilauea started erupting I got really into just watching video after video for like months I was obsessed with watching um, the volcanoes and I didn't realize until today but when the magma the magnetic energy is flowing there's oftentimes lightning striking the side of the mountain at the same time there's always volcanic lightning. It's so strange. It's really, really strange, actually. So I want you guys to um, think about that. The, the, even the earth right now is trying to balance the masculine and feminine energies. And so I want you to temper the masculine and feminine energies inside of you. You know, whether you're a man or a woman or um, a transgender person, I don't mean like what your physical body is telling you you are. Your gender comes from within, but it's beyond physicality. It's beyond gender. The masculine energy and the feminine energy is inside of you. And you need to love and embrace and accept that within you. And at the same time, we have to throw off all, especially at this time, we've got to throw off all the crap, all of the stereotypes you know the junk you know um, it's not necessary anymore you know to think of a man that means I gotta go kill animals in the woods no it doesn't mean that if you want to do that then do it if you're man or woman doesn't matter but if you don't want to do that don't do that you know you're not like less masculine because you're a vegetarian and you're not um, less feminine because you dress like a man because masculinity and femininity in their truest sense and state it's more of um, an energy inside you it's a feminine or a masculine state of mind or a balanced harmonious state of mind between the two energies right you know I'm not telling you to not wear your high heels and not wear your, your dresses if that's what makes you feel good whether you're a man or a woman doesn't matter to me you know do what makes you feel good but don't do what society tells you you should do based on what they assume your genitals are you know <laughs> it's like kind of ridiculous that is ridiculous to me you know and I've had too many um, experiences where men assume certain things just because they assume I'm female and then they assume a whole bunch of stuff about me. We need to stop assuming stuff about each other. Men, women, trans, whatever. We have to stop assuming all of it. You know? We just have to accept everything. We have to love everybody and love ourselves and love the feminine and the masculine energy that runs between us because that was part of our dual. That's part of the experiment of this world is the duality and the polarity. And now we are joining all the parts of ourselves together for unification with each other and within ourselves so that we can go into the fifth dimension where there is no more duality or polarity. And we don't need that, that anymore. Right. It was fun. It was a good experiment. We did a good job. We don't need it anymore that we have to accept all of the equal things about ourselves, like equally love the things of ourselves, right? 
So those are my thoughts for today is just about that. But I, I love that, that magnetism is feminine and electrical part. The electricity, the electro is masculine. And that's in your body a hundred percent, right? We have a magnetic force field. When your Kundalini flows, like the energy is like magma flowing and flows up your spine and goes out your head and it flows through all your chakras and it comes back around in your feet. That's a magnetic field. Your heart puts out a magnetic field. That's your feminine. The electricity literally is your nervous system. (laughs) The thoughts that you put out with your brain, that's your nervous system. That's why um, the emperor, he's more cerebral. He sits on a cube of space. And the feminine energy, the empress in the Holy Tarot, she sits on a throne in a garden because that's her magnetism, you know, like the magnetic energy. And there's a flow of water that's underneath her feet. And that also represents that magnetism energy. I think there might even be um, at least a symbol for it, if not an actual energy of a um, lightning symbol in the the, um, Emperor card. I know that he's he's holding a staff that says, if you look really closely in the Rider Waite deck, um, the different parts of the staff that he, or scepter that he's holding in his hand literally say tarot, T-A-R-O-T. It's hidden in plain sight. When you see it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> but it's the same yellow as what is used in the tower card for the lightning. Exactly the same yellow. Because it's it's kind of correspondent to that. Anyway, now I'm thinking about those cards and I have them in my mind completely. It's really crazy, really interesting stuff. I love this stuff. So, we're supposed to be hit. We were just hit today with, on the 5th we were, on the 12th um, we were hit with more um, energy waves, um, the energy pulse waves. Today, also, I felt it. I slept, man. I slept 13 hours on the 13th, Friday the 13th. I hope none of you have triskaidekaphobia, fear of the number 13. But for me, it's always been a lucky day. This is the last Friday the 13th of the decade (laughs) and of the year. So, I don't know, guys. I had a really strange... I mean, I was working out a lot of stuff in my dreams in balancing the masculine feminine energy. And then I read, then I heard uh, Sarah O'Brien's um, half, I, only, I didn't even listen. She has like an hour long video she just released. I only listened to like half of it just tonight. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's weird. Cause that's what I was working out in my, in my dream. I was working out that masculine and feminine energy inside myself and also with my twin flame. And when I fell asleep, um, I woke up this morning and then I, as I'm falling asleep, I felt his hand on my face. I felt my twin flame's hand touch my face and it made me feel calm and I fell asleep. 
it was incredible. I was like, oh my gosh. And we were like communicating, like sending each other pictures. I thought that was cool. I really want to meet him in person because it's just going to be so exciting. But, (laughs) you know, like to just talk about all the stuff we have in common and all the ways that we've thought about the world and each other and ourselves. And I look forward to that, those conversations. And I look forward to falling in love with him, you know, just to be honest. But um, that energy of him touching my face today was just like, wow, I feel you, you know, it's just like, I really felt him. It was pretty cool. It was a good energy. And, um, so I know I was like working that out. I'm, and the thing is, once we balance the male and the female within us, that's how we enter into that Christ consciousness, that powerful Christos energy. Right. And that's where we're all headed. I mean, that's, this is a Christ consciousness planet. You know, that's what we all are striving towards. The energy that Jesus himself, you know, Brother Yeshua had, this is the energy that um, Lord Krishna had. A lot of the ascended masters, most of them have that Christ consciousness. You know, the person who held the office of the Christ, there's been a lot of different Christs, but, um, you know, Jesus held the office of the Christ. He was the highest um, regarded avatar on the planet. And from his very first lifetime, he started working on it, according to Grandma Marion. And that's where we're all headed, is that high vibrational Christ consciousness. Now, according to Sarah O'Brien, she was saying that the divine masculines, the people who, um, I guess, uh, embody more the divine masculine energy, this week are going to, when they're hit by the waves, they're going to be getting rid of low level, low vibrational, like music or TV shows or energies or vibrations, people, um, circumstances. They're going to be getting rid of all of the negative stuff that keeps them in low vibration. So if you start purging your, whether you're female or male, doesn't matter. Um, or gen, you know, gender or, you know, physical, it doesn't matter. It's just if you are more masculine, then you can start purging stuff that just doesn't really serve you any longer. You know, that doesn't, that keeps you kind of hooked to that negative low vibration. You know, if you, if you were like continuously watching horror movies, which is based on the guilt of society, most of them. And, and that's like literally what the genre of horror is. It's like pointing out to us our own guilt. And sometimes in in the movies or whatever, it's like the person's guilt or it's, you know, so it's like focusing on those negative energies such as guilt, you know, that might be part of the purge, right? Or low vibrational music that's talking about fighting all the time, fighting with women or fighting with society. You're fighting with someone of a different race or of a different, you know, socioeconomic status, like the energy of fighting and yuckiness, that's all going to go away. We're, you know, we're purging things that no longer serve our true sacred divine purpose. So I thought that was interesting. Now, um, Sarah O'Brien said she sees on the 16th that well, so 14, 15. So Monday, basically, we're going to be feeling another wave of massive amounts of energy. It's going to be four times more than it was on the fifth. And it's going to be massive. 
and we probably shouldn't stay outside, but it's not going to matter because it's going to hit the whole planet. And when it does, it's going to just speed up. Like once it hits, it'll go right through us really super fast. And it's going to be very, very much like a ton of radiation. And there's nothing we could do. Can't run or hide no matter where you're living in an underground bunker or you're standing outside. It's going to hit everybody. It's going to hit everything on the planet. That'll be Monday. So just be ready for it. Don't be upset or afraid of it. Just be ready for it and be ready to embrace the lessons of it, the light codes in it, the DNA changing parts of it, because we're trying to strip away all the stuff that no longer serve us. And we're trying to embrace the things that bring us to our true Christed master self. Cause we all have that Christ itself that's waiting for us. We're just trying to step into that body and embrace the ascended master inside of us with the balanced divine feminine and the balanced divine masculine. So, okay. I'm going to talk to you guys about the Schumann resonance, um, on disclosure news, it in Italy, uh, significant activity even today as in the last few days consisted mainly in isolated peaks those of today were two of them very strong the first at 6 a.m. UTC reached power 60 the shortly after one the second shortly after reached power 51 and then at 1700 it was calm so basically Hertz frequency out of Italy is 60 Hertz that was pretty much it now going right to heartmath.org. Before we go into what happened today, let's see here. Uh, in Hulului, South Africa, they did reach a peak of 297 at 6 a.m. yesterday. And then they had another peak at like 290 hertz frequency at, at 20 hundred hours yesterday and then four hours later which is where we start at midnight this they went down to 255 but we're going to get to that in a minute i'll read them all in order like normal okay so um california started off at 50 hertz frequency at midnight and they went up to 57 hertz frequency by 5 a.m and Hofuf Saudi Arabia was zero all the way across the board. They haven't budged yet from there. Lithuania started off at 18 hertz frequency. So they're very, very low on this right now. So that's kind of strange, right? And they, they did peak, though, at 109 at 5 a.m. yesterday, if you recall that. So it's very strange that they went very far down at uh let's see by midnight they were at 18 and by 5 a.m they were at zero zeroed out that's in lithuania now a lot of people met hofuf at that zero point today so it's very interesting um alberta canada at midnight they were only one off of lithuania they were at 17 17 hertz frequency at midnight and they went down to zero by 5 a.m. So 
Northland, New Zealand was at 83 hertz frequency at midnight. And by 5 a.m. they were at 81. I hope that means there's not going to be as much volcanic activity. And that, that whatever the earth and sky were doing to balance things out, I'm hoping that everything got balanced out over there. Now, this one is significant. Of course, I did mention this a second ago. In Hulului, South Africa, at midnight, they start off at 255 hertz frequency. And by 5 a.m., they they went down to 237 hertz frequency on the Schumann resonance scale. So, I don't know, if you're anywhere near South Africa, I'm sure you're feeling it. I I don't honestly believe that we're feeling like if I'm like the farthest point away possible from Italy and they spike, I don't think I'm feeling that one. I feel like I'm feeling the one near me, whether there's a machine to measure it or not. I don't feel like people should blame it. Like, Oh, look in Italy is 158 when two weeks ago when it was 700 in Africa and no one felt it because they didn't bother to look. So I feel like some of it's psychosomatic and I feel like some of it's, um, what we think we're feeling on the Schumann resonance has nothing to do with that. I mean, the energy, the cosmic waves that, you know, the, the solar winds hitting us, plasma hitting us from the sun. Um, and then the interdimensional energies that are hitting us, the beams of love that the Pleiadians and the Lyrans are sending us all the different, um, ET races, Oh, that's the other thing. Yesterday, um, I took a picture and of all these clouds. It wasn't until later that I realized all of the Pleiadian light chips that were in the clouds. And Jude, um, my near twin flame who lives in Florida, on his way home from work, he kept seeing these triangular-shaped crafts as well as round crafts. So lots of pre-disclosure things are happening around the globe. I know um, my friend in Canada sent me Pleiadian light ship pictures um, about a month or two ago. I know it's happening all over the globe, just, you know, not just here in Florida. It's it's all over the globe. And I feel like if you look, the more you look, the more you're going to find it. Just keep looking up. Keep taking pictures. Even if you feel or sense something and you don't see it, take a picture and then blow up the picture and look at it later. Because I, I was looking at this going, oh my God. And in the clouds, it looks like there's a massive cloaked ship. And so that led to a dream that I had in which I was venting out the idea that maybe we're all wrong about the ETs and they're evil and they're trying to eat us. <laughs> or enslave us or kill us or I don't know what but that was a weird venting dream I had (laughs) where I was like they're gonna get us and we were so dumb we believe them but I I do believe that they have love and light I feel the love and light from them so that was just a venting dream that I was venting out all the negativity from all of the stupid movies we've been programmed to see you know the movies that were teaching us to not trust them You know, so I also had a a crazy dream where I went to heaven and I spent the whole day with Desi Arnaz. And what was funny is he and Lucy were, Lucille Ball, they were always in the same room. They were always like within a few feet of each other, but usually just kind of ignoring each other. 
you know, and they're not married in heaven. There is no marriage in heaven. Remember Jesus said that, right? You know, so, and we all have a bunch of soulmates. So, you know, there's any number of people you can hang out with when you're there, right? But I went to a cafeteria to eat lunch in heaven. And I'm just kind of hanging out with my friends. And this man comes and he sits down next to me and it was Desi Arnaz. And he kept the body of what he looked like when he died, like kind of a little bit older and a little bit, a little bit overweight. And he was keeping that image. And I thought it was funny because Lucille Ball, who was in line at the cafeteria to eat, um, they always kind of like stay around each other and they, to keep in touch and make sure when, you know, make sure they're okay, but they're not really talking right now. And I don't know if they're in a fight or what was happening, but Lucille Ball was, very beautiful and very young. Like she looked like 20. She was so beautiful. Her porcelain skin and her just, she's just gorgeous. Thin, beautiful. She didn't look anything like how she did when she died. She went back to her young, beautiful self. And it's funny. He wanted to be, he wanted, and I don't know if he was just punishing himself, you know, if he felt guilty about having cheated on her so many times in life. I don't know what it was about. I didn't ask him. I felt like it was too personal, but, but he came and he sat down next to me and he just kind of was looking down, eating his food. And I'm like, Hey, I know you. And we started talking and I said, you know, I met your son years ago in Santa Barbara. I met Desi Arnaz jr. And he goes, you did. How is he? How is he? And he started crying. He had like tears in his eyes. I'm like, he was fine. He's a wonderful human being. He's so sweet. He's one of the sweetest people I've ever met in my life. And I actually hugged him. And he's like, oh, good. I'm so glad. And he's like, cried. He's like, he's like, I miss my family so much. And I love him so much, right? And I'm like, I asked him about Lucy, and he kind of completely ignored me. It was funny. But we ended up spending the whole day together, and we ended up just hanging out. And, like, we're strolling through gardens and just talking about life and about different things. And it was a very interesting and very sweet dream. And I woke up crying, and I felt like there's so much of the past it was, there was some sweetness from my childhood watching that show and how much I loved these people. And it's funny because after today I realized, oh, I knew them in heaven, of course. That's why I was so drawn to that show, obviously. I mean, plus, obviously, it's a hilarious show. I love comedy. But, um, you know, we all know each other in heaven, right? But there's certain people we gravitate towards and there's certain things that we gravitate towards while we're here, but it's because we have a connection with them either from past lives or from um, heaven where we know them as our friends. Oh, and some, some of these people feel like family, neighbors, friends, you know, but um, he and I were just like so simpatico, you know, in sympathy with each other in rapport. And it was really incredible. I was like, you know, I really care deeply for you you've you're like such a good friend and I had forgotten that and now that I spent all this time with you you know and he's like yeah I know you know and it was just really sweet hanging out and I told him I hope that he and Lucille can work this out because they were always so good together you know what I mean but it, it was just like a really wild dream I woke up crying like oh my god I I forgot that I had been friends with these people you know in heaven, it's not like, ooh, the celebrities. It was more, it's more like everyone knows everyone. It's, everyone's accessible. Everything's easy. I mean, in the end, we're all one anyway, right? We all come from the same 
you know, source. I thought that was interesting. I, I'm like, I, I enjoyed the dream very much. It was like, oh, I want to go visit him again. <laughs> Maybe I'll go visit Lucy next time and try to make the peace between them. But <laughs> and speaking of peace, we are on lesson 185 in A Course in Miracles today. And we want to raise our vibrations with high vibrational thoughts and high vibrational things. And that's why I read a couple thoughts from these lessons every day at least for the past 185 days. Today um, will have been my working 346 days in a row. This is my 346th show in a row. And I've made a decision that next year, after I have made 365 episodes in a row, um, and of course starting January 1st will be my season two, and I am going to start taking... Saturdays and Sundays off so that I can dedicate from Friday's show until Monday's show. I'm going to dedicate that time to spending with my 17 year old during his last official year of childhood, even you know, while, you know, before he enters into adulthood in 10 months. And I'm going to take him fishing and camping and we're going to try to go hiking together. And I told him that I, I really want to dedicate our weekends to traveling, hitting the jungle, going to the beach, maybe checking out the volcanoes. <laughs> maybe not the active ones, <laughs> especially not Reventador. I don't trust him. He's the troublemaker. I do feel a great deal of love for San Gay Volcano. My friend who is, he's Ecuadorian and he, his name is Tino and he lives in Washington, D.C. And I think he might be American Ecuadorian, I think, or Ecuadorian American, depending on what country, <laughs> you know, you look at. But um, he's, uh, he sent me a picture of San, San Gay Volcano today. I was like, oh my God, that is so beautiful. Uh, you know, and he, he's like, oh, you're so lucky being there. And I do, I feel like the giver the Sangay, the Giver Volcano. It gave me an energy. It did. I felt an energy from it. Even though now I've been having a hard time breathing for two days. Uh, and I'm getting better again from that. But I felt so much love from that volcano when the ash was in the air. There's an energetic pattern in it that's just so beautiful. and so incredible. And it's that, mag- it's that feminine magnet energy. And so lovely, but I was really grateful to Tino for sending me a picture of Sangay with all the lava flowing down its sides. And it made me happy, like super happy. I can't believe that that made me happy like that, but it did. I just was like, oh, it's like, it's like our volcano, right? <laughs> you know, our, you know, my son and I are embracing Ecuador as our second country and we're embracing Spanish as our second language. And we're embracing all parts of the nature around us and for me like that volcano going off is just like oh that's kind of become a part of me now you know I'm feeling the oneness and the unification with other things and other people and I'm embracing that energy the oneness energy so I hope that you guys are able to do that too I hope that you're feeling it and going through it and if you are I'd love to hear about it if you want to write me 
and let me know. So, okay, lesson 185, ACIM.org is the website for the Foundation of Inner Peace and A Course in Miracles. And you can always, you know, download an app if you want and take the lessons. I don't read the full lesson. Keep that in mind. Only parts of it, okay? But today's lesson is very simple. I want the peace of God. I want the peace of God. P-E-A-C-E, like the tranquility of God. I want the peace of God. To say these words is nothing, but to mean these words is everything. If you could but mean them for just an instant, there would be no further sorrow possible for you in any form, in any place or time. Heaven would be completely given back to full awareness memory of God entirely restored, the resurrection of all creation fully recognized. I want the peace of God. No one can mean these words and not be healed. He cannot play with dreams nor think he is himself a dream. He cannot make a hell and think it's real. He wants the peace of God and it is given him. For that is all he wants, and that is all he will receive. Many have said these words, but few indeed have meant them. You have but to look upon the world you see around you to be sure how very few they are. The world would be completely changed. Should any two agree, these words express the only thing they want. I want the peace of God. All right, I'm going to let you guys get to reading the whole lesson on your own. There are 14 small paragraphs, very powerful words though. So there it is. I, uh, I'm going to take a quick break. And when I come back, I'm going to help you guys get into the Christmas spirit. And by Christmas spirit, I mean St. Nicholas. Ooh, little St. Nick. That's right. We're going to actually learn about St. Nicholas, the real one. The one and only who kind of was the basis for the idea behind Santa Claus. But St. Nicholas was a real true human being. We're going to go over some things that you did maybe know and some things that you maybe did not know, like his connection with sailors, men that live their lives upon the sea in great big ships of old. And we're also going to go over the names of Santa Claus and a few other things right after these messages. Metaphysical Soul Speak is run on sponsors and listener support. This means listeners like you. 
If you are so inclined to support my efforts and my little podcast, please visit me at anchor.fm forward slash metaphysical and pledge an amount of your choosing today. Thank you. All right, guys, I am on the website called stnicholascenter.org. So I'm going to go over a few uh, things that it says about St. Nicholas, St. Nick, who became later known as Santa Claus. So we're going to um, go over who the real man was behind the commercially known Santa Claus, basically. So the true story of Santa Claus begins with Nicholas, who was born during the 3rd century in the village of Patara in Asia Minor. At the time, the area was Greek and is now on the southern coast of Turkey. So that's interesting. I I don't know about you guys, but I kind of remember the story being like he was from Germany or something. So this is kind of new information for me, although I remember hearing the word Greek before in relationship to him, but very interesting. Okay. (laughs) His wealthy parents raised him to be a devout Christian but they died in an epidemic while Nicholas was still young. Obeying Jesus' words to sell what you own and give the money to the poor, Nicholas used his whole inheritance to assist the needy, the sick, and the suffering. He dedicated his life to serving God, and he was made the Bishop of Myra while still a young man. Bishop Nicholas became known throughout the land for his generosity to those in need, his love for children, and his concern for sailors and ships. See, that last one's a new one on me, and I I thought I heard the, the story of him before, but I didn't remember that part. Under the Roman Emperor Diocletian, who ruthlessly persecuted Christians, Bishop Nicholas suffered for his faith and he was exiled and imprisoned. The prisons were so full of bishops, priests, and deacons that there was no room for the real criminals, the murderers, thieves, and robbers. After his release, Nicholas attended the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. He died December 6th, A.D. 343 in Myra and was buried in his cathedral church where a unique relic called manna formed in his grave. Okay, guys, if you know what the hell manna is, I want to know what that is. (laughs) Is it Ormus? Maybe? What is that? Manna. Manna from heaven. Like, what's the chemical structure of manna? That's what I want to know. Okay, they go on to say, This liquid substance said to have healing powers 
fostered the growth of devotion to Nicholas. The anniversary of his death became a day of celebration or St. Nicholas Day, which is December 6th or the 19th on the Julian calendar. So through the centuries, many stories and legends have been told of St. Nicholas's life and his deeds. These accounts help us understand his extraordinary character and why he is so beloved and revered as protector and helper of those in need. One story tells of a poor man with three daughters. In those days, a young woman's father had to offer prospective husbands something of value, a dowry. The larger the dowry, the better the chance a a young woman would have to find a good husband. Without a dowry, a woman was unlikely to marry. This poor man's daughters without dowries were therefore destined to be sold into slavery. Women have always had like the shit end of the stick, have they not? (laughs) That's terrible. Mysteriously, on three different occasions... A bag of gold appeared in their home, providing the needed dowries. The bags of gold tossed through an open window are said to have landed in stockings or shoes left before the fire to dry. So this led to the custom. Uh, it's crazy. You know, earlier I tried to start this show and there was this, um, <laughs> this ambulance outside. And every time I went to start the show, it would like, woo, like, <laughs> like three or four times, like it would be quiet. And I'm like starting to start going to start the show and same thing. It was hilarious. I'm just, I don't know. It's just hilarious. Okay. <laughs> Uh, love when the universe works in crazy ways. <laughs> All right, so um, where were we? This led to the okay, no beeps. This led to the custom of children hanging stockings or putting out shoes, eagerly awaiting gifts from Saint Nicholas. Sometimes the story is told with gold balls instead of bags of gold. That is why three gold balls, sometimes represented as oranges, are one of the symbols for St. Nicholas. And so St. Nicholas is a gift giver. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I know growing up, I always had oranges and apples and nuts, like walnuts given to me from Santa for Christmas time. Like my stocking, I would have like a couple pieces of candy, chocolate, you know, or whatever. Sometimes like toffee or something and peppermints, lots of peppermints and candy canes. But most of my stocking was always filled with oranges, like three oranges, three apples. So now I'm wondering if my grandpa didn't know that. I think my grandpa gave me those. (laughs) I love oranges. I always loved receiving oranges for Christmas. It was super, super special to me. And even my kids love it. They're like, you know, I think one year I didn't give them fruit. And because I kind of forgot that part of it that one year. And they were like, 
oh, you know, I really miss those gain oranges for Christmas. And I'm like, oh, I think that was when we were in Peru. We didn't have access to oranges as much. Citrus doesn't grow there as much as in other places. They have oranges, but it's not as, you know, it's not the same. They're different kinds of oranges. They're juice oranges, so they're really hard to peel. And so I think that was the one year I'm like, oh, I'm not going to give them that because it's kind of a pain to peel them. But all right. <laughs> but oranges, I, I I never knew that, so that's kind of exciting <laughs> to know where that comes from. I thought, honestly, I just thought it was something my grandpa did because he wanted me to be healthy, so he always gave me fruit. <laughs> so, wow, cool. All right, moving right along with the story. <laughs> One of the oldest stories showing St. Nicholas as a protector of children takes place long after his death. The townspeople of Myra were celebrating the good saint on the eve of his feast day when a band of Arab pirates from Crete came into the district. Uh, That right there is a crazy image. Arab pirates from Crete? Weird. All right. Is that where we get concrete? I'm sorry. I just, I, I had to. <laughs> All right. Anyway, these Arab pirates from Crete stole treasures from the church of St. Nicholas to take away as their booty. As they were leaving town, they snatched a young boy named Basilios to make into a slave. The emir or ruler selected Basilios to be his personal cup bearer. As not knowing the language, Basilios would not understand what the king said to those around him. So for the next year, Basilios waited on the king, bringing his wine in a beautiful golden cup. For Basilios' parents, devastated at the loss of their only child, the year passed very slowly and they were filled with grief. As the next St. Nicholas's feast day was approaching, Basilios's mother would not join in the festivity because now, for her, it's a day of tragedy. However, she was persuaded to have a simple observance at home with quiet prayers for Basilios's safekeeping. Meanwhile, as Basilios was fulfilling his tasks serving the emir, he was suddenly whisked up and away. St. Nicholas appeared to the terrified boy and he blessed him and he set him back down at his home in Myra. Imagine the joy and wonderment when Basilios amazingly appeared before his parents still holding the king's golden cup. This is the first story told of St. Nicholas protecting children which became his primary role in the West. That is a cool story. I'd never heard that. Another story tells of three theological students traveling on their way to study in Athens. A wicked innkeeper robbed them and murdered them, hiding their remains in a large pickling tub. It so happened that Bishop Nicholas, traveling along that same route, stopped at the very inn. In the night, he dreamed of the crime, and he got up and summoned the innkeeper. As Nicholas prayed earnestly to God, the three boys were restored to life and 
wholeness. Holy crap. In France, the story is told of three small children wandering in their play until lost, lured and captured by an evil butcher. Saint Nicholas appears and appeals to God to return them to life and their families. And so Saint Nicholas is the patron saint and the protector of children. Several stories tell of Nicholas and the sea. When he was young, Nicholas sought the holy by making a pilgrimage to the holy land. There, as he walked where Jesus walked, he sought to more deeply experience Jesus' life, passion, and resurrection. Returning by sea, a mighty storm threatened to wreck the ship. Nicholas calmly prayed. The terrified sailors were amazed when the wind and the waves suddenly calmed, sparing them all. And so... St. Nicholas is now the patron saint of sailors and voyagers. Other stories tell of Nicholas saving his people from famine, sparing the lives of those innocently accused, and much more. He did many kind and generous deeds in secret, expecting nothing in return. Within a century of his death, he was celebrated as a saint. Now today, he is venerated in the East as wonder or miracle worker and in the West as patron of a great variety of persons. Marriage, I'm sorry, that does not say marriage, sorry. So, okay, he is a patron of a great variety of persons, obviously children, mariners, bankers, pawnbrokers, scholars, orphans, laborers, travelers, merchants, judges, paupers, marriageable maidens, (laughs) students, children, sailors. Wait, we already said children. We said mariners too. All right. Sailors, same thing as mariners, right? Victims of judicial mistakes. Oh, that was an interesting one. Captives perfumers, even thieves and murderers. He is known as the friend and protector of all in trouble or need. There's even a list (laughs) on stnicholascenter.org. You want to see if you're on that list, if you want to find out if he is your saint or not. Sailors claiming St. Nicholas as a patron carried stories of his favor and protection far and wide. St. Nicholas chapels were built in many seaports. As his popularity spread throughout the Middle Ages, he became the patron saint of Apulia, which is in Italy, Sicily, Greece, and Lorraine, France, That's also where Quiche Lorraine comes from. I wonder if he liked Quiche Lorraine or if it's just a wild coincidence. (laughs) Okay, probably just coincidence. In many cities in Germany, 
Austria, Switzerland, Italy, Russia, Belgium, and the Netherlands. And there's also a list of all the countries that have churches dedicated to him. Following his baptism, Grand Prince Vladimir I brought St. Nicholas's stories and devotion to St. Nicholas to his homeland, where, Saint, where Nicholas became the most beloved saint. Nicholas was so widely revered that thousands of churches were named for him, including 300 in Belgium, 34 in Rome, and 23 in the Netherlands and more than 400 in England. Nicholas's tomb in Myra became a popular place of pilgrimage. Because of the many wars and attacks in the region, some Christians were concerned that access to the tomb might become difficult. For both the religious and commercial advantages of a major pilgrimage site, the Italian cities of Venice and Bari vied to get the Nicholas relics. In the spring of 1087, sailors from Bari succeeded in spiriting away the bones, bringing them to Bari, a seaport on the southeast coast of Italy. An impressive church was built over St. Nicholas's crypt, and many faithful journeyed to honor the saint who had rescued children, prisoners, sailors, famine victims, and many others through his compassion, generosity, and the countless miracles attributed to his intercession. The Nicholas Shrine in Bari was one of medieval Europe's great pilgrimage centers, and Nicholas became known as Saint in Bari. To this day, pilgrims and tourists visit Bari's great basilica di San Nicola. Through the centuries, St. Nicholas has continued to be venerated by Catholics and Orthodox and honored by Protestants. By his example of generosity towards those in need, especially towards children, St. Nicholas continues to be a model for the compassionate life. Widely celebrated in Europe, St. Nicholas's feast day, December 6th, kept alive the stories of his goodness and his generosity. In Germany and Poland, boys dressed up as bishops and begged alms for the poor and sometimes for themselves. <laughs> In the Netherlands and Belgium, St. Nicholas arrived on a steamship from Spain to ride a white horse on his gift-giving rounds. December 6th is still the main day for gift-giving and merrymaking in much of Europe. For example, in the Netherlands, St. Nicholas is celebrated on the 5th, the eve of the day, by sharing candies thrown in the door, chocolate initial letters, small gifts, and riddles. Dutch children leave carrots and hay in their shoes for the saint's horse, hoping St. Nicholas will exchange them for small gifts. Simple gift-giving in early Advent helps preserve a Christmas day to focus on the Christ child. So that's very interesting, isn't it? All right, so let me see. There's some, I think the, the patron saint one. 
I guess it just talks about what a pa- patron saint is. Basically, a patron saint is someone who you call upon if that is your saint, for example. So, um, you know, like there's a, a saint, um, I think it's St. Bridget is the patron saint of psychologists because she was mentally ill after having gone through some really horrible things um, at the hands of her stepfather. And then later um, she became like a, a prostitute. So like she's like this patron saint of prostitutes and abused children and abused people and also psychologists because she was able to heal herself. And where, but she was murdered, and where she was murdered, a spring came up out of the ground in Ireland. And um, when people touch it, um, I think blind people are made, um, you know, they can see. And people that are mentally ill are made well. And people that have a deep sorrow from really horrible um, abuse, they feel relief. For example, so she's a patron saint of that. So St. Nicholas would be, of course, a patron saint of all the things we already just mentioned, right? <laughs> but as a patron saint, you call upon your patron saint like a friend and ask them to help you or bring you relief in one way or another, just like you'd ask your friend, hey, I'm hungry, bring me, please bring me a... Uh, loaf of sourdough bread and cheese. I don't know what you say to your friends, but <laughs> you know, Hey, can I borrow your car? I don't know what you, know. but whatever you'd say to a friend, you could say to your patron saint, obviously can't really borrow, you know, St. Nicholas's, um, sleigh and reindeer. Cause that's, uh, the stuff of legend and myth that built up over the ideas of Santa Claus <laughs> and Santa Claus came out of the St. Nicholas idea. So we're going to go over the origin of Santa Claus so we can understand the difference. And um, this, this website is kind of a little bit upset that it became what it became, but I kind of like the idea of Santa Claus because I don't agree with them saying it's so that he's all about commercialism so much, even though his image is used in commercialism and capitalism, consumerism and all that at this time of year. And it's overused, of course, even, even here in, um, even here in, in Ecuador, I mean, there's a Santa Claus that's 10 feet tall outside the mall, this big, beautiful statue. It's like, oh my gosh, it's incredible. And it's a typical North American style Santa Claus. And it's very strange. Like I've seen when I was a little girl, I remember seeing images of Santa Claus that he had uh, fur around his, um, around his uh, collar that was white with black spots. And then now you don't even see that anymore. So there's a lot of different versions of what supposedly he looked like or whatever, or what he wore. So it says, how did the kindly Christian saint, good Bishop Nicholas, become a roly-poly red-suited American symbol for merry holiday festivity and commercial activity? Well, history tells the tale. So we're going to go over the history of that. 
The first Europeans to arrive in the New World brought St. Nicholas. Vikings dedicated their cathedral to him in Greenland. In his first voyage, Columbus named a Haitian port for St. Nicholas on December 6, 1492. In Florida, Spaniards named an early settlement St. Nicholas Ferry, which is now known as Jacksonville, Florida. However, St. Nicholas had a difficult time during the 16th century. Protestant Reformation, which took a dim view of saints, even though both reformers and counter-reformers tried to stamp out St. Nicholas-related customs, they had very little long-term success, except in England, where the religious folk traditions were permanently altered. And it is ironic, they say, that fervent Puritan Christians began what turned into a trend to into a more secular Christmas observance. Because the common people so loved St. Nicholas, he survived on the European continent as people continued to place nuts, apples, and sweets in shoes left besides beds, beside beds on windowsills or before the hearth. The first colonists, primarily the Puritans and other Protestant reformers, did not bring Nicholas traditions to the New World. What about the Dutch? Although it's almost universally believed that the Dutch brought St. Nicholas to New Amsterdam, scholars find scant evidence of such tradition in Dutch New Netherland. Colonial Germans in Pennsylvania kept the feast of St. Nicholas. Uh, it makes sense. My dad was born in um, Pennsylvania. And he ended up playing Santa Claus. Like, my, my whole childhood, my dad literally embodied Santa Claus. He grew a beard. He dyed it white. Kids would pull on his beard, and they would be like, oh, my God, you're really, really the real Santa. And I loved and cherished that about my father, actually. So, uh, so colonial Germans. My dad was German. My, he was my adopted father. Um, Colonial Germans in Pennsylvania kept the feast of St. Nicholas and several later accounts have St. Nicholas visiting New York Dutch on New Year's Eve, thus adopting the English custom New Year gift giving had become the English custom in 1558, supplanting Nicholas and this English custom lasted in New York until 1847. So, in 1773, New York non-Dutch patriots formed the Sons of St. Nicholas, primarily as a non-British symbol, to counter the English St. George societies rather than to honor St. Nicholas. (laughs) Okay. This society was similar to the Sons of St. Tommany in Philadelphia. Not exactly St. Nicholas, the children's gift giver. After the American Revolution, New Yorkers remembered with pride their colony's near-forgotten Dutch roots. John Pintard, the influential patriot and antiquarian who founded the New York Historical Society in 1804, promoted St. Nicholas as a patron saint of both society and city. In New York, that's pretty cool. In January 1809, 
Washington Irving joined the society, and on St. Nicholas Day that same year, he published the satirical fiction, Knickerbocker's History of New York, with numerous, numerous references to a jolly St. Nicholas character. This was not the saintly bishop, rather an elfin Dutch burger with a clay pipe. Hey, I have a clay pipe. Don't knock him. <laughs> These delightful flights of imagination are the source of the new Amsterdam St. Nicholas legends that the first Dutch emigrant ship had a figurehead of St. Nicholas, that St. Nicholas Day was observed in the colony, that the first church was dedicated to him, and that St. Nicholas comes down chimneys to bring gifts. Irving's work was regarded as the first notable work of imagination in the New World. The New York Historical Society held its first St. Nicholas anniversary dinner on December 6, 1810. John Pintard commissioned artist Alexander Anderson, that might be one of my cousins, that my grandmother's maiden name was Anderson with an O and the uh, Swedish, not the Norwegian version, also Anderson with an O is in Ireland and Scotland. It's a Scottish name as well. Um, anyway, that's neither here nor there, but I love to learn about names. <laughs> so John Pintard, Pintard uh, commissioned artist Alexander Anderson to create the first American image of Nicholas for the occasion. Nicholas was shown in a gift-giving role with children's treats and stockings hanging at a fireplace. And the accompanying poem reads, or ends, St. Nicholas, my dear good friend, to serve you ever was my end. If you will now me something give, I'll serve you ever while I live. The 19th century was a time of cultural transition. New York writers and others wanted to domesticate the Christmas holiday. After Puritans and other Calvinists had eliminated Christmas as a holy season, popular celebrations became riotous. Riotous. Featuring drunken men and public disorder. Well, that's the New York I know. I'm just kidding. I've never been to New York. <laughs> that's a New York I've seen on movies. <laughs> Christmas of old was not the images we imagined of families gathered cozily around the hearth and tree exchanging pretty gifts and singing carols while smiling benevolently at children. Nobody ever smiled at me benevolently like since I was three years old. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> Rather, it was... <laughs> okay, okay, Christmas in New York at that time was characterized by raucous, drunken mobs roaming the streets, damaging property, threatening and frightening the upper classes. <laughs> oh my God. Do you guys have that song in your head? 
<laughs> I guess it's New Year's Eve, babe, in the drunk tank. An old man turned to me and said, I won't see another one. <laughs> you guys know the Pogues. You know exactly what song I mean. <laughs> one of my favorite all-time songs. It's horrible. And also hilarious, but I love the Irish joking about this. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh my God, frightening the upper classes. That's just, that's just rich. <laughs> the holiday season coming after harvest when work was eased and more leisure was possible was a time when workers and servants took the upper hand, demanding largesse and more. <laughs> Through the first half of the 19th century, Presbyterians, Baptists, Quakers, and other Protestants continued to regard December 25th as a day without religious significance, a day for normal business. This was not a neutral stance. Rather, Christmas observance was seen as inconsistent with gospel worship. Industrialists were happy to reduce workers' leisure time and allow many fewer holidays than existed in Europe. All of this began to change as a new understanding of family life and the place of children was emerging. Childhood was, be, was coming to be seen as a stage of life with, in which greater protection, sheltering, training, and education were needed. And so the season became gradually to be tamed, <laughs> turning towards shops and home. St. Nicholas II took on new attributes, attributes to fit in with the changing times. 1821 brought some new elements with publication of the first lithographed book in America, The Children's Friend. This Santi Clause, S-A-N-T-E, Saint, or Sant, Santi, Santi, I don't know, Sant Clause, arrived from the north in a sleigh with a flying reindeer, a flying reindeer. The anonymous poem and illustrations proved pivotal in shifting imagery away from a saintly bishop. Santa Claus fit a didactic mode, rewarding good behavior and punishing the bad, leaving a long black birchen rod directs a parent's hand to use when virtue's path his sons refuse. That's dark. <laughs> Gifts were safe toys, pretty doll, peg top, or a ball. No crackers, cannons, squibs, or rockets to blow their eyes up or their pockets. No drums to stun their mother's ear, nor swords to make their sisters fear, but pretty books to store their mind with knowledge of each various kind. The sleigh itself even sported a bookshelf for the pretty books. The book also notably marked S. Claus's first appearance on Christmas Eve, rather than December 6th. The Jolly Elf <laughs> image received another big boost in 1823 from a poem destined to become immensely popular, A Visit from St. Nicholas. 
now better known as The Night Before Christmas. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and his beard of his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held right in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf. And I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. Now, it doesn't say the rest of that. And this shows more. And this is Washington Irving St. Nicholas strongly influenced the poem's portrayal of a round pipe-smoking elf like St. Nicholas. The poem generated generally has been attributed to Clement Clark Moore, a professor of biblical languages at New York's Episcopal General Theological Seminary. Moore was a friend and neighbor of William Gilly, who had published Sancti Claus in 1821. Old Sancti Claus, with much delight, his reindeer drives the frosty night, or chimney tops and tracks of snow to bring his yearly gifts to you. However, a case has been made by Don Foster, an author unknown, that Henry Livingstone actually penned it in 1807 or... 1808. Livingstone was a farmer and patriot who wrote humors first for children. In any case, A Visit from St. Nicholas became a defining American holiday classic. Now, no matter who wrote it, the poem has had enormous influence on the Americanization of St. Nicholas. So there it began, the Americanization of Santa Claus. <laughs> the New York elite succeeded in domesticating Christmas through a new Santa Claus tradition that was invented by Washington Irving, John Pintard, and Clement Clark Moore. Now Moore's poem was printed in four new almanacs in 1824, just one year after it was in the Troy, New York paper. The poem and other descriptions of the Santa Claus ritual appeared in more and more local papers. More than anything else, a visit from St. Nicholas introduced the custom of a cozy domestic Santa Christmas tradition to the nation. Other artists and writers continued the change to an elf-like St. Nicholas, Sancte Claus, or Santa Claus, unlike the stately European bishop. In 1863, during the Civil War, political cartoonist Thomas Nast began a series of annual black and white drawings in Harper's Weekly, based on the description found in the poem in Washington Irving's work. These drawings established a rotund Santa 
with flowing beard fur garments and an omnipresent clay pipe. Nast's Santa supported the Union and President Lincoln believed this contributed to the Union troops' success by demoralizing Confederate soldiers. As Nast drew Santas until 1886, his work had considerable influence in forming the American Santa Claus. Along with appearance changes, the saint's name shifted to Santa Claus, a natural phonetic alteration from the German Sankt Niklaus. Nicholas, Niklaus, Klaus, Klaus, right? All right. Churches influenced by German immigrants who love Christmas. Clement Clark Moore, Washington Irving, Charles Dickens, the Oxford movement in the Anglican church and church musicians embracing carol singing began to bring Christmas observances into their lives. The growth of Sunday schools in cities exposed hundreds of thousands of children to Christianity. Initially opposed to Christmas observance by the 1850s Sunday schools, had discovered that a Christmas tree, Santa, and gifts greatly improved their attendance. So, in a strange twist of fate, the new secular Santa Claus, no longer seen as a religious figure, helped return Christmas observation to churches. That's very interesting. I did not know any of this. Santa was then portrayed by dozens of artists in a wide variety of styles, sizes, and colors. However, by the end of the 1920s, a standard American Santa, life-sized in a red fur-trimmed suit, had emerged from the work of N.C. Wyeth, J.C. Leyendecker, and Norman Rockwell, and other popular illustrators. The image was solidified before Haddon Sundblom in 1931 began 35 years of Coca-Cola Santa advertisements that further popularized and firmly established the Santa as an icon of contemporary commercial culture. The Santa was life-sized, jolly, and wore the now familiar red suit. He appeared in magazines, billboards, shop counters, encouraging Americans to see Coca-Cola as a solution or the thirst for all seasons. (laughs) And people wonder why in the 80s cocaine was so popular. They they do put coca leaves in coke. They still do, actually. It's not cocaine, it's coca. (laughs) It's a safe leaf. But by the 1950s, Santa was turning up everywhere as a benign source of beneficence, endorsing an amazing range of consumer products. The commercial success led to North American Santa Claus being exported around the world, now where he threatens to overcome the European Saint Nicholas, who has retained his identity as a Christian bishop and saint. It's been a long journey from the 4th century Bishop of Myra, St. Nicholas, who showed his devotion to God in extraordinary kindness and generosity to those in need, to America's jolly Santa Claus, whose largesse often supplies luxuries to the affluent. However, if you peel back the accretions, he's still St. Nicholas, Bishop of Myra, 
whose caring surprises continue to model true giving and faithfulness. There is a growing interest in reclaiming the original saint in the United States to help restore a spiritual dimension to this festive time. For indeed, St. Nicholas, lover of the poor and patron saint of children, is a model of how Christians are meant to live. A bishop, Nicholas, puts Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, at the center of his life, his ministry, his entire existence. Families, churches, and schools are embracing true St. Nicholas traditions as one way to claim the true center of Christmas, which of course is supposedly the birth of Jesus. Even though I personally think he was born in March because I think he was a Pisces, but that's neither here nor there. Such a focus helps restore balance to increasingly materialistic and stress-filled Advent and Christmas seasons. So I thought that was pretty interesting. I did not ever hear the entire history before. I hope that you guys enjoyed this. Um, let me see. There were some other things here I thought were, in, were interesting. All right, there are several symbols that are associated with St. Nicholas. One is the mitre, which is basically the tall pointy hat worn by a bishop. And usually it's red with a golden cross on it. And the mitre is a, um, it's, it's, it's kind of holiday gift givers in, I would say probably the Netherlands and, you know, Europe would be more familiar with this symbol. Um, it's just holiday gift givers will give gifts that have pictures or images of a mitre, basically that, that, that bishop hat. Crozier, or crozier, C-R-O-Z-I-E-R, never heard that word before, but it is a hooked staff that's carried by a bishop, which represents a shepherd's staff. Um, you know, Jesus is a good shepherd, so they carry that as like a symbol of that. It's a general symbol for bishops, but it's unique to Nicholas among gift givers, just like the uh, hat. Now, three golden balls, which obviously your oranges or apples are sometimes used to represent that. Um, it's dowries for impoverished maidens. Nicholas's gold balls became a pawnbroker's symbol. So that's interesting, too. Um, what's weird, the way that I understand dowries today Um they're not as common, but in Islam, uh, if a man wishes to marry a woman, he gives her a dowry so that she will always have her own money. And then he promises to pay for her and love her. And if the marriage does not work out, she has a dowry that he gave her so that she can make a new life on her own away from her husband. So it's uh, meant as a symbol of protection. I will always protect you and here's money. And if I don't protect you, you still have the money so that you could go make your own way in the world. That's the way that I understand dowries today, at least in the religion of Islam. But it's interesting that women had to give men the money back then. How fair is that when women that in those days weren't even allowed to marry or to work and then they have to give men money to marry them. That's crazy. That's some really crazy, messed up stuff right there. Anyway, other symbols of St. Nicholas are gold coins or money bags, usually three, 
also three maidens to represent the uh, three maidens who received gold dowry money from St. Nicholas. And this one's a really freaking weird one. Three children in a bathtub, in a tub, when he rescued the children that had been murdered. That's like a really insane symbol. I don't like that at all. Like, especially small children in a in a bathtub like I don't know in conjunction with anyone who works for the Catholic Church to me gives me the creeps I don't like that symbol for him at all but there it is that's one of the symbols children in general um, two or three children um, always seen there he's the patron saint of children of protecting children which is ironic when you think about the other crap that happens in the Catholic Church but we're not gonna go over that right now <laughs> ship a ship is uh, symbolized um, as one of his, his symbols for St. Nicholas because of his connection with sailor ships and the sea. So, of course, the same thing with the anchor um, symbol is for St. Nicholas. And I was thinking, you know, my dad played St. Nicholas. He played Santa Claus, um, you know, like I just said earlier. And my dad was also in the Navy. So anchor is like a perfect symbol to, for both of those things. I was like, oh, I do want to get a tattoo for my dad. I'm thinking about what to get. Maybe I'll get an anchor since my podcast is also on anchor. <laughs> so, you know, hey, it's all these things. I was a pirate in a past life. Well, captain of a ship, but technically a pirate, I guess. <laughs> in a past life, mostly I was just normal merchant, but... Yeah, some things were done later, I guess. We won't talk about that. Book. Just a large book of the Holy Scriptures or Gospels. That's also, because he was a bishop, that's a symbol of St. Nicholas. And shoes, because children put carrots, turnips, or hay in the shoes for St. Nicholas's horse or donkey. And hoping that they will get treats when the horse eats it and he'll leave treats in in the in there so afterwards it's funny there was shoes in the beginning and then later became stockings right i thought that was that was kind of interesting um let's see there's customs around the world to do with saint nicholas but let's see do i even have time to go over them yeah maybe if i could go through them quickly um there are saint nicholas customs on this website saintnicholascenter.org from 42 countries, they have the information. Um, so, who travels with St. Nicholas? They talk about the American Christmas customs versus the St. Nicholas customs. Um, rescuing St. Nicholas from Santa Claus. There, There's literally in, I want to say... Um, in, in different parts of Europe, they're actually now trying to rescue St. Nicholas to bring that tradition back so that people understand. But there's a lot of stuff here. Um, I'm not going to go over all of it, but if you want to do your own research, you might actually find this website very interesting. I know I did. There's a lot of different imagery, and they're all way different. But the, all the different names of Santa Claus, we're going to go over that. In Albania, he is Shen Nikoli, Koli, or Kolit. In Arabic, he is Mar Nikula. In Basque, he is San Nicholas. In Bulgarian, Sveti Nikola. Catalan, Sant Nicolao. Croatia, Sveti Nikola. 
Czech Svati Mikulas, Saint Nicholas, Nicholas or Saint Nicholas in Dutch, Saint Nicholas in English, in Estonian Puha Nikolai, in French Saint Nicholas, Georgian Sminda Nikolosi, Greek Agios Nikolaus, German Sankt Nikolaus, Niklas Niklai, Nicolo in Austria, Sami Klaus in Switzerland, hopefully I'm saying this correctly, Hungarian Sent Mikulas or Miklos, or maybe that's Miklos, I don't know, Italian San Nicola, San Nicolo or Nicolo, in Latin Sanctus Nicolaus. Lithuanian Sveti Mikolochus. In Luxembourg, Klishen, Macedonia, Sveti Nikola, Maltese, San Nikola, Norwegian, Sankt Nikolai or Nikolaj. Polish, Sveti Mikolaj or Sweti Mikolaj. Portuguese, Sao Nikolau. Romanian, Svantul Nikolai. Romanish and Rom yeah Romansh Sant Kaklau Russian Siv Sivyatoy Nikolai Nikolsky Nikolovsky I am not maybe saying that at all right Slovakian Svati Nikolas Slovenia Svetnik Miklas Spanish San Nicolas Swedish Sankt Nicholas or Nikolai, Turkish Aya Nikola, <laughs> Ukrainian Sviatij Nikolai. Okay, I can't believe I got through that. <laughs> I am sorry if I said it wrong in your language because I know people from all over the world listen to the show. Well, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot more on this website so 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 much more we might get to it again later in, in the month but if not please go check it out stnicholascenter.org <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed the celebration of the actual Saint Nicholas I have loved him my whole life as Santa Claus as well as Saint Nicholas himself Saint Nick I feel him I have felt him I have experiences which I will share with you on Christmas Eve that I have experienced his spirit with me and oftentimes I have just been greatly comforted by his energy he is a beautiful and lovely being that is absolutely real so if anyone ever tells you Santa Claus isn't real well, the idea of Santa Claus comes from St. Nicholas, who was a very real person, and he still is a real person. He just is not incarnate right now. So I do believe in Santa, <laughs> Santa Nicola. There you go. There you have it. All right. <laughs> That's it. If you have any stories about St. Nicholas, please Send them in to metaphysicalsoulspeak at gmail.com. So I want to hear them. Miracles about this time of year, etc., etc. We're running out of time, guys. We have like 10 more days. 
actually nine more days. I need them within the next nine days. So a week from Monday is the deadline. All right. (laughs) That's it. I want to say thank you to you guys for listening to the show and for promoting it among your family, friends, like-minded folks, acquaintances, and your groups on Facebook as well as Instagram and your Twitter followers, your Twitters. Twitterers, I don't know. Is there... You can't say twits. That's not right. (laughs) The people you know on Twitter, that's what I'm trying to say. Well, thank you so much for those of you who have promoted the show. I really, really, really appreciate it. And I am so grateful for all of you. I'm grateful mostly, though, that we are together on this incredible journey of self-discovery, transformation, and ascension. I am so grateful for all of it yay and that we're now embodying the divine masculine and the divine feminine and we're all doing this work together thank you for that i don't feel so alone anymore (laughs) all right that's that's it guys that's all i gotta say about that i'll be back tomorrow with all unique and original programming just like always signing off with peace and joy, and the high vibes of the holy fifth dimension. Until next time, guys, peace. Do you ever wish you could look into the next chapter in your book of life and see what's coming next? What does the universe have in store for you? I can help you with that. I will give you a Celtic cross reading, which is 10 cards, or you can ask me three questions and I use three cards per question. So that's nine cards or I can channel your higher guidance or maybe God directly for you. Maybe you want to talk to your dear departed Aunt Edna because maybe you have a few questions and she was the smartest person you knew. If your deceased relatives are available or your ascended masters, I can channel them for you personally. Let me have one hour to show you the future in your next chapter of your book of life. Readings are $75 and it takes me an hour to an hour and a half to complete. And for this price, you will also be hooked up to the healing grid around the planet for free, which means yours truly, me, I will be giving you Reiki 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the rest of your life. All you have to do is let me know. Metaphysicalsoulspeak at gmail.com and we will explore your future together. (laughs) 